We live in a world where there is always some trending controversy. On any given day, someone that we thought is a hero or to be admired is revealed to be something that he's not. We live in a world where there seems to be no escape from breaking news, from clickbait social media, from new celebrity scandals. There's no escape from political conflicts. We live in a world in which people like you and me are drawn into hostile divisions even over issues that that maybe just 10 years ago we didn't even know that they were issues. And even if we try to stay away from it, it's so prevalent that we can't seem to ignore the constant scandalizing and sensationalizing. I want to move on, but I've hesitated and I've debated whether to mention this. But I'll bring it up because it was the big story this week, just to let you know what I'm talking about. When a well-known celebrity, a well-known public figure, and I'm not talking about some newcomer, but someone that we think we've known for quite a while, goes through such a drastic change, and then there are politics that surround it. We get drawn into it, and it seems like everything just descends quickly. When something like this happens... We, we can't always ignore it. And, and then things are said. And I'm reluctant to mention it because I know that there are different opinions probably, even among us here. But this involves a big celebrity. And national politics are now getting involved in it. And it may be disturbing, but maybe it's time that something be said. I am, of course, talking about the news that Japan has recognized Godzilla as a resident of that nation. Some of you are acting like I was talking about something else. Is this not what you were thinking about? Because if this is not the thing that was on your radar screen, you need to get your priorities right. Not only have they recognized Godzilla as a resident of Japan, but they have made him an ambassador of, tour- of tourism. I-, I-, I know there's different feelings on this. And um, I-, I know that And I told you, it involved a big celebrity, and there is no bigger celebrity than Godzilla. Not even King Kong is as big as Godzilla. Godzilla is a whole King Kong higher uh, than, than King Kong. But we've known Godzilla for a long time. I've known Godzilla for a long time. And as far as I know, he and Japan have never had the best of relationships. And I don't know that he's ever been held accountable for what he did when he first appeared in 1954. No one's ever said anything about it. But if I want to bring that up and I want to say we need to do something about that, then you see, somebody will inevitably call me a hater. Oh, I'm a hater, and I can't forgive and forget, and I can't let bygones be bygones. I'm a hater because I want to hold Godzilla accountable. Okay, fine. But I also know that Godzilla's done a lot of good. I get that. I mean, without him, uh, we would have been invaded by Megalon and Ghidra, the three-headed monster. But Godzilla, he stood on our side in that. But if I mention that, then somebody will say, well, you're just giving in to popular culture and you're just being soft on the issues. Fine. But who knew that we were supposed to take a position on this? Who knew that there was going to be a pro-Godzilla side and a pro-Japan side? 
And you don't, you don't even get into the thornier issues, like what are you going to do with the Rodan Rights Coalition? What are you going to do with the Mothra Movement? See, you, had, you didn't even know those were issues. You'd better pick a side now. Now, you can say this isn't a real news story. You can say this is, well, it is a real news story. You can say it's not a big deal, and I'll say Godzilla is very big. But what are you going to do with other scandals that pop up? What are you going to do with other things that seem to just grab our attention and draw us into conflict? You can say, well, maybe so, but what does it have to do with Christian belief? And I'll tell you, here's what it has to do. Anytime it has to do with the way that we behave ourselves and the way that we speak in public, whether it's in public, whether it's online, whether it's to our friends, whether it's to our family, or people we don't know, anytime that it has to do with our words and behavior, it's a Christian matter. It's a matter of faith. Because we are the people who are supposed to proclaim the oracles of God. We are the people who are supposed to declare the praises of God. And we really need that in what is a post-apocalyptic world and a post-apocalyptic church. Now, you've prob- you may have heard this term before, post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic is usually meant to be after the disaster, that there's going to be an apocalypse, some great disaster. And we tend to think that post-apocalyptic is something on the other side of where we're at right now. I'm telling you, we are in post-apocalyptic right now. Because the apocalypse is not a disaster. The real meaning of the word apocalypse is a revelation, a revealing. And you and I are on this side of a very important revelation that came to the Apostle John on a Sunday morning when he was worshiping. So... The post-apocalyptic reality is now, after a truth, a certain truth has been revealed. The apocalypse, that revealing, that thing that's been revealed, it reminds us who Christ truly is, and it reminds us then who we truly are. The apocalypse is the revealing of truth. And even though there are a lot of changes in our world, whether it's Japan and Godzilla getting along like you never believed would ever be possible, or whether it's other changes in this world that might disturb you, maybe some things that, all joking aside, you find to be a bit more serious. Those changes can disorient us. Those changes can make us feel like we are living in the days approaching the apocalypse. But we are living in the days after the apocalypse. And I want you to know this. I want everybody to hear this. There are some people among us right now who can remember when the church and our culture in this nation just meshed well, and we got along just fine with our culture. And there wasn't, there, it wasn't that far of a movement to see where the culture and Christianity were in step with each other. And sometimes that was good, and sometimes that wasn't so good. But now it seems more and more that the Christian faith and people of faith are being pushed to the side and that Christianity is more on the margins of our culture and something new is turning over in our culture and that can be very disorienting. Some think that that change is great. Some find that change very distressing. But here's what I want to ask you. If we live in just such times of of upheaval, Can we 
find something that enables us to make it through these times of change. If we live in such a world, is there anything that can help us find our reorientation in times of disorientation? And just forget stuff that's in the media right now. Because there are real things that happen in our lives. There are real things that happen in the lives of people that we know and love. Things that will never be tweeted, things that will never be clicked, things that will never be posted or pinned, but they are real things that will disorient our lives. And my question to you is, in a world filled with disorientation and conflict, In a world confronting us with problems that sometimes we don't even know how to define. In a world of uncertainty and growing fear for the future, is there one voice that stands out with truth? Is there one who can bring us a confident hope for today and tomorrow? And I want to reveal to you what I hope you already know. That there is one. There is one, and it is Jesus Christ the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We should know that. We need to remember that he's not just the dead founder of an organization, but he is the living Lord. He is the King of kings, and he is the one. The Apostle John lived in a world like our world, filled with upheaval, filled with politics and persecution. And even though the culture may have been different, the disorientation was the same. And so John finds himself in exile. And I want to read to you from Revelation 1. I want you to see what John's worship service was like on that Sunday morning. Chapter 1, verse 10, it was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard a loud voice behind me, a voice that sounded like a trumpet blast, and it said, Write down what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were bright like flames of fire. His feet were as bright as bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was as bright as the sun in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one who died. Look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Whatever comes to mind when you think of Jesus Christ... I want to give you seven things that he says about being the one that we can look to in times of disorientation. When we feel like everything's, uh, all the wheels are coming off the track and everything's changing and we're being pushed to the margins and that the world is getting worse and worse, when we feel like we're in, in a world like that, I want you to remember 
that there is one that we need to look to. These seven things show up in the messages to the seven churches. And if the seven churches don't at first seem familiar to you, I want to reveal to you who they are. They are us. There are seven churches, because in that way he's saying seven is complete, seven is total. He's saying those seven churches are all the churches. All the churches that ever have been, all the churches that ever will be. Of course there's seven specific congregations in those cities. But it's also a message for everyone who will hear what the one who speaks and tells John to write this down will have to say. Because in, telling, in sending a message to these seven churches, the first thing he's saying is, this is who I am. And if you know who I am, then you're going to know who you are. And that's the same for us, church. That's the same for us, West Ark. That's the same for all of our congregations in this nation and any other nation. If we know who Jesus Christ is, then we will always know who we are. First thing he says, I am the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Christ is present among the churches. If, if we're ever worried that Christ is not with us, if we're ever worried that he's far off, if we're ever worried that he's not with us, notice that the first thing he says is, I'm in your presence. And when we gather to worship, that's the symbol of the lampstand. The symbol of a lampstand is a, pre, is a symbol of worship. You need to know that he's here. We don't show up and sing enough songs that we summon the Spirit of Christ we don't have to work and concentrate or clap our hands and, and, and believe in whatever mystical things we want to believe in and summon Christ. That clapping your hands bit is like, you know, Peter Pan. Clap your hands and believe in fairies, you know, never mind. Anyway, you know, we don't have to just summon up enough energy to believe in these things and force each other to believe. The presence of Christ is with us before you and I even recognize it. He is with us. He is the one among the seven gold lampstands. He's not summoned. He summons us. In worship and in fellowship, we gather together and, and we, we form a kind of resistance. A resistance to the powers of sin, to the powers of wickedness, the powers of injustice in this world. But in that resistance to the, to the work of evil in this world that corrupts God's creation, the one who stands among the seven lampstands says... Do not lose the spirit of love. Because if in your resistance you lose that spirit of love, I will withdraw my presence from the lampstands. It means that Christ's presence is no longer going to be with us if we abandon love. The second thing that he says is, I am the one who is the first and the last who died and is alive. Now here's the ultimate message of hope. For the disciples of Jesus. For those who fear persecution, and, and, may, and you know, maybe we feel some kind of low-level persecution because we don't get most favored religious status in this nation anymore. Maybe sometimes we feel like we're slighted. Maybe sometimes we feel like we're put down because we're believers in this world. But know this, others lose their lives. And throughout history, people have lost their lives. And they have been, they have been shut out in real ways. And whether it, that should ever come to us, and of course it is going on even now, 
Remember the word of Jesus when he says, I am the one who's the first and the last who died and is alive. Did you notice the, re- the order on that? It goes against the norm. Died and is now alive. Most of us think of being alive and then we're going to die. Jesus says, I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. When you have that message of hope, when you have a leader who says he has overcome death, th- there's, there's nothing greater to overcome. The battle was won a long time ago. There's no greater victory. There's no greater accomplishment. And sometimes if we feel like the work of Christ is somehow unfinished or incomplete and, and it's all up to us to carry the burden, the battle was won a long time ago. We just, we just have to stay faithful to the victory. It doesn't mean that there aren't real things that need to be dealt with. This morning in the class, Micah Brinkley, and we've mentioned it this morning, mentioned the reality of some, of some, some horrors, some real things in this world that can discourage us when we look at it and we think it's all up to us to solve the problems of what's been done, the evil that's been done to children, to innocence. But you need to know this. We can approach those matters with faith. We can approach those matters without fear. And we can approach those matters with love because we know that we follow the one who died but now is alive forever and ever. He started this. He's going to finish it. He is the first and the last. Christ has triumphed over death. And we who've been baptized into Christ share in that triumph. He fights the battle. He also says, I am the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Christ fights with the one weapon that can never be overcome. Imagine any weapon, imagine every, any, any force on earth. It can ultimately be overcome. It can ultimately be outmatched. But there's one weapon, there's one force that can never be out, over, overcome. There's, there's one force that can never be outdone, and that's the truth. And, and that's the truth of God, especially. The, the, the sword that comes from Christ's mouth is the word of truth. And we often try to fight our battles with our own words, with our own weapons. It might be our own words and weapons of expertise. It might be sophisticated forms of protection and security. Or it might just be our fists. Whatever it is, it will not compare to the sharp two-edged sword that is the truth of God. When the truth prevails, it's Christ fighting against wickedness and injustice. And we need to remain firmly rooted in that truth. Otherwise, we may find ourselves relying on our own ability to force others to see things our way. We We may be relying on our own ability to secure power, control. We may be relying on our own resources to secure ourselves. And when we do, we might become the oppressors. Why do you think it's a two-edged sword? Not because that's just a really cool sword, but because it cuts both ways. And the truth is that powerful that you have to stand firmly rooted in it and be aware of it because not only does it cut against those who may oppose the truth, but it will cut against us as well. So we want to be sure that we stand with the one who wields that sword. 
The fourth thing that Christ says about himself is he says he is the Son of God whose eyes are bright like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished brass. This is the image. You can go all the way back to Daniel. This is the image of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is one who who is going to come at the end of times, and he's going to judge all of creation. And Christ says, I am that individual. I am that expected figure. And and he's described with, with feet like brass. That means he has a solid footing. He can't be knocked over. He can't be knocked down. He is firm and solid in his stand. And he has a piercing gaze, a gaze like fire. He can see all things. So he knows, and he stands, and there's nothing that escapes him, and there's nothing that can topple him. So we want to stand with that one, with that son of man, who judges all things, knowing that nothing escapes his authority. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought these things about Christ, but this is the way he describes himself. And maybe this is the image that we need to get in a world of conflict and disorientation. The fifth thing that Christ says about himself. This is one we may not think of. He is the one who has the sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven stars. Now you can make a lot of hay about what that is. What are those seven stars? How do we get those seven stars? We don't get those seven stars. He has those seven stars. He has that sevenfold spirit of God. The message here is that Christ is empowered by God's spirit. And he gives us that spirit. In the Gospel of John, he's talking to his disciples and he says, when I'm reunited with my Father, when I, when, when, when I am raised from the dead, when I am King of kings, Lord of lords, he will send you the Spirit and you will be able to accomplish much more when I am with my Father than you could when I was with you. Do we understand the resources that are available to us? And sometimes we, we sit around in a, in a world of disorientation, in a world of worry, And we limit ourselves because we look at our meager resources and we say it's not enough. It's just not enough. We just don't have what it takes. We're never going to have what it takes. And I guarantee you, no matter how equipped, how intelligent, how powerful, how wealthy we are, it's never going to be enough on our own. But friends, what if we could look and see the resources of the one who has those seven stars, that sevenfold spirit of God? Sevenfold simply meaning that it is the complete, perfect spirit of God. There's nothing more that you need. You don't have to add something to it. It's everything that you need. Let me put it like this. Throughout history and right now in the world, God is doing so much through churches, through committed groups of disciples who do not have any favor with the culture that they live in. They are oppressed, they are persecuted, they are put down, and they are changing the world right around them. How is that possible? When we think that we have to have government support, when we think that we have to curry the favor of all people, we don't want to go and tick people off unnecessarily. We don't, you know, this isn't a permission to be rude. But when we think that we've got to have everyone's approval to accomplish anything, ask me how it's been done throughout history and around the world. We're, 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 we're subversive groups 
who are looked down upon, but they have great joy. Look at the, read the book of Acts. The disciples were persecuted and they were scattered, and yet the church was just growing. How is that possible? Because they knew about these resources. When we think that we don't have enough money, when we think that we don't have the right facilities, when we think that we don't have the right talent, we're, we're tallying up, we're doing an accounting job on all the things that are just a small part of it. We need to look at the heavenly resources that are available to us if we follow the one who has the Spirit of God. God has accomplished great things in churches that have no visible resources, churches that have no favor because they remained faithful to him. The sixth thing that he says about himself is that he is the one who has the key of David. Now, ask you... What does this mean? You know, is, is, this, is this something deep and esoteric and hard to understand? No, just ask yourself, what does a key represent? Well, a key unlocks things. A key opens things. A key represents authority. If you have a key, then you have a certain level of authority. If you're a key holder, then, then you're entrusted with something. The key of David means that Christ has the ability to open what other people think they can shut and have the final authority on that. God made a promise to David, King David, that there would always be one of his descendants on the throne, that, that, that visible symbol of authority on earth. And that authority has now been invested in Jesus Christ, and it's not, it's not up for any other candidates. No one else needs to take over that role because Christ is going to fulfill that role forever. And that means he's been given that key. So when we think that we're being shut out, when we think that we're being pushed to the margins, just remember that we follow the one who has all authority to open things up. When we're afraid that somebody else is going to take away our salvation, when we're afraid that somebody is going to keep us out of the kingdom of heaven, you need to get to know the one who has the key. Get close to him, he'll open all the doors for you. That's the one that we need to be following. Christ promises to give us and share in his honor if we will trust in him and persevere. He has the key to open and shut what others may not. And if a key is not enough for you, then think of it as the password. There is no higher administrative level than the key of David, okay? Not only is it the password to the whole system, it is the system, it is the mainframe, it is the cloud, it is the programming, it is the matrix. It's all of it. And Christ has the key to it. Finally, he says he is the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Amen is having the last word. It's what we tack on to the end of prayers. It's what we say when we agree with something. It means that's well said. Say it like that. We believe it. It's an affirmation. Christ, the risen Christ, is the last word. There's there's nothing else to be said. We're just waiting. We're just in that pause between the time when the prayer is finished and we're waiting to hear that word, amen. You know how that tension goes. You're going to experience in just a few minutes because somebody's going to get up here and pray and you're going to be, when's he going to hit that amen? Not to lay too much of a burden on whoever's leading that prayer this morning. But, you know, I mean, you're waiting for it. Now, listen, if you can feel that much anticipation, can you sense the, the level of anticipation that we ought to be feeling in the times that we live in? 
Instead of living in, in despair, instead of living in disorientation, we just need to stand around and wait. You know, what is God going to do? Because he's going to finish this off. He's going to get the last word, not anyone else. We don't have to wait and see who's going to win the debate. We don't have to wait and see who's going to win the, the elections. We don't have to wait and see which side is going to win out over the other side. We don't have to see who's going to change things forever in the culture. Christ gets the last word. He's the faithful and true witness. Stay on his side. Trust him in all of this. It can be confusing. It'll be quite a ride. There's going to be a lot of anticipation, but he was there for the beginning at the creation. He's been there through it all. And he's going to have the last word on the shape of the future. So why do we trust in anything else? There's one phrase through all of these, through all of these messages to the church. He has described himself in seven different ways to seven different churches in these, in this, in these messages in Revelation 2 and 3. But there's one thing that he says to each and every one of the seven churches. So it's one thing that Christ is saying to each and every one of us. He says... Simple phrase, I know, I know. He says, I know what's going on, I know what you're dealing with, I know what you're going through, I know what you're facing. Remember, nothing escapes his gaze, and he is not powerless in, 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 against any of it. He says, I know. Christ is not ignorant of what goes on in difficult times. It's not that he is somehow caught unaware or he's not disoriented. He knows what's going on, even if we don't. There's no power on earth. There's no, no force on earth. There's no oppressor. There's no government that is too much for him to handle. He knows. And he knows what we're going through. He hasn't forgotten about us. If we're going through trials, he knows, and he goes through it with us. He's aware of what we're doing. We don't hide anything from him. He knows. And if we're worried about what other people are doing, you know, they say focus on, you know, just pay attention to what you're doing. Don't worry about what others are doing. If that's not enough for you, let me say this. Don't worry about what others are doing. Christ knows what they're doing. You leave it between him and them. And you pay attention to what is going on between you and him. My question is, if he knows, my question to each and every one of you is this, do you know him? I, I, I have given you from Scripture seven things that Christ says about himself. He says those things because he wants you to know him. He wants you to know who he is so that you can know who you truly are. He's making himself known to us. Can we take that beyond just knowledge and information and turn that into a relationship? where we know him, where we are his followers, and we follow him, and he teaches us, and he equips and empowers and encourages us. Some of you have begun that relationship by identifying yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and yet you may need encouragement as you come to know him better. Some of you may be wanting to start that relationship. Whatever encouragement we can give you, we're going to take a moment right now in our worship John was encouraged by what was revealed to him, and he shared that encouragement with others. I hope you've been encouraged today. We'll have shepherds down here, shepherds in room 100. If there's any way we can encourage you, you have the opportunity to respond while we stand and sing.